Welcome to Cross of Gold, the podcast where two brothers, one a Christian in the political wilderness and the other a socialist in the spiritual wilderness, work to rediscover faith in each other, our communities, and the American experiment. We have begged and they have walked when our calamity came. We beg no longer, we defy them. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Hello again here from Cross of Gold. I'm your host, Cyrus, the socialist brother. And here again with me, as always, is Chase, the Christian brother. Chase, how you doing today? Oh, I am good. And I am also truly in the wilderness this morning, politically. That is, you know what? Uh, we've had some great conversations with some colorful folks the last uh, couple conversations, Cyrus. And uh, who we're bringing on right now is definitely going to pull me in his direction just by... You know what, our our relationship and the force of his example. And so I'm confused is already is what I'm going to tell you. Well, I guess by virtue of that, I have to be inherently antagonistic to our guest. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely try to make him yeah, shame him somehow, please. Yes. But today, as you alluded to, we have a great guest, Brian Sears. Brian is a graduate student at Baylor studying American history. Uh, Chase, you want to... Uh, Intro him a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So Brian's also a was a classmate of mine at West Point, uh, 2012. So for more than ourselves, ooh, I haven't said that yet. That's a, that's no, a, that's yeah. a good though. Didn't feel didn't feel cheesy. And I don't even you know remember what, what our class motto was. Uh, well, let let you be. <laughs> um, but you know what, Brian and I taught Sunday school together. And man, whenever Brian and I were doing similar activities, whether it be cadet or religious, I loved hearing Brian speak because he is a U.S. history nerd. In the, in the best way. And you know what? And he's got a, a personal faith and conviction that I really admire. And so we wanted to bring him in to talk, you know what, uh, American history and give us some context about how the f- people in the church have expressed their faith, faith politically. And then to get his, you know, his encouragement on maybe um, or and his warnings or whatever to other voters that are Christians that aren't like you know, me or anything else. So we're looking for him to challenge um, and, and open some minds today. So without with that, let's introduce Brian. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Chase. Uh, Cyrus, it's really good to be here with you guys. Yeah, Brian. Yeah, so thanks, Brian. Uh, you know what? I, I don't think I've ever asked you this point blank, but and I, we've got limited time where you probably have a thousand stories of your progress with with Jesus, but maybe you can just start for, for me and for, you know, the folks listening, what kind of Christian are you? You know, like, how would you classify <laughs> yourself? What do you believe in, man? Well, I, I, I guess as far as what kind of Christian am I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm trying to work that part out. I'm trying to um, stumble along as best I can, definitely in need of grace. Um, but uh, I, I guess I grew up in a Christian home. My uh, uh, my parents were uh, believers and raised us as Christian believers. We, I guess, for most of growing up, went to uh, somewhat of a charismatic church, and I um, came of age really identified uh, with that tradition and with those beliefs and practices. And then, you know, uh, through a couple of experiences overseas and uh, a lot of uh, reflection just began to kind of, you know, evaluate my faith and say, okay, well, 
you know, is what I believe <clears throat> the essence of Christianity, or is it in fact, you know, more of a reflection of the country and the time uh, in which I've lived. And um, as, as part of that, you know, kind of wrestling with my own faith and, and uh, difficulty with American Christianity as it is, have actually become Anglican. We converted a couple of years ago. And, Whoa. and um, currently we are yeah, attending a great Anglican parish here in, um, in Waco, Texas. We, uh, we also really loved our church in uh, El Paso while we were living there. And we've appreciated the, the tradition, you know, the idea that you are connected to 2,000 years of people who have, um, you know, faithfully stumbled along trying to follow Christ. Um, vice more of a tradition where uh, that history is not as, as prominent, I guess. Sure. Um, by like prominent do you mean like the history has like baggage for the faith that it kind of prevents it from like like the catholic church has has so much tradition and history that sometimes that gets in the way of the actual message right well so for for the charismatic and pentecostal movement in general um there are there are historical figures that are important there are um historical periods that are important um but a lot of the focus is on individuals and their personal relationships with God, with Jesus, and the experience, uh, you know, ecstatic uh, religious experiences, whether it's uh, speaking in tongues or healing or prophecy or whatever the case is. There's this very real, uh, there's a focus on, you know, an individual experiencing, you know, powerful spiritual manifestations. And I guess where the Anglican tradition uh, would diverge from the Catholic tradition, the Roman Catholic tradition is the Roman Catholics hold tradition and scripture somewhat equally. And Anglicans would say, okay, well, you know, uh, scripture is uh, preeminent, it's primary, and it's interpreted through the lens of tradition. And then with the the reason that God has uh, given us. And that's been, that's been very helpful in, in my own faith um, to kind of use that as a lens for evaluating, you know, belief and, you know, uh, is this true? Is this not true? And it's also been helpful to, to kind of uh, the, the idea that our faith doesn't belong to us, right? We live in a country where there are just a multitude of, of um, religious options, right? Within Christianity, outside of Christianity, um, uh, completely uh, separating oneself from any kind of religious tradition altogether. But I came to the point in my own faith where I, you know, where I said, you know, I can, I can put together uh, a faith that suits me, or I can submit to the idea that maybe my faith doesn't belong to me. And maybe I need to submit myself to a, a tradition that's kind of faithfully shepherded people in their walks with God uh, over the course of the last, um, you know, 500 years as far as the Anglican tradition. But that's drawing on, you know, the previous 1500 years of, of big C Catholic tradition uh, the world over. So that's kind of a long answer. <laughs> what was sorry. that like no, for you? Uh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that it's uh, fascinating. You know, I don't meet a lot of Anglicans these days. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, Brian, you gave us King Henry. Yeah. 
Davis, uh, I was going to ask, you know, what's one thing from a, a Pentecostal or you said tongues and experience potential healings. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that, uh, you know, the quick byline for someone who's not familiar with Anglicanism that you can, you know, w- allow them to walk away with? Oh, that's an Anglican. <laughs> yeah, sure. So uh, for most of U.S. history, uh, the Anglican church in uh, the U.S. has been the Episcopal, the Episcopal church. And there are, you know, there's also nowadays the Anglican Church in North America, uh, which, which we're affiliated with. But basically, the Anglican Church was founded, we like to say, you know, at the time of Christ, basically. But it was separated <laughs> from the Roman Catholic Church during the reign of Henry VIII in the, uh, in the 1500s. And then, so Anglicans are broadly reformed, uh, tend to be evangelical, but there are also some... Catholic practices that are very similar to Roman Catholic. So if you if you want to think about Anglicanism, it's kind of like we like to say the via via media, right? The middle way between Roman Catholicism and low church Protestant uh, practice in in the West, at least. So the Anglicans basically said, "Hey, you know, you Roman Catholics have innovated." and changed the nature of the faith in ways that don't make sense, that don't line up with the Bible. Uh, so we're going to get rid of that. But what we're not going to do is kind of go to the other extreme, like a lot of the other Protestant reformers, and get rid of things like, you know, bishops and confession and some of the uh, church structure that has been consistent throughout, you know, 1500 years of church history. I mean, if you wanted to go to a church somewhere where they didn't baptize babies um, before the year 1500, you couldn't go anywhere. If you wanted to go to a church where they didn't have bishops, you couldn't go anywhere. Um, And so, uh, you know, Anglicans um, tend to be very, you know, thoughtful and deliberate about what they do and how they think. And, and one of the uh, ways that they worship is, is using the Book of Common Prayer, which is about 80% scripture, but it is a set liturgy for worship. So you don't really ever show up on any given Sunday wondering what's going to happen. There are unique things that can happen if it's certain feast days or if it's a part of the certain you know, portion of the church year. Um, but generally, so sort the of that moving through that part of the textbook on any given Sunday. Right. You, you, yeah. you Not know. for the crowd that likes surprises. Indeed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same uh, thing every Sunday. Brian, it's, it's you know good. what? That sounds like a good future episode if we can uh, fool you into that, just uh, talking about different uh, sects of Christianity and some, you know, the, the impacts of those today. But sure. that's not what we're necessarily here for today. Um, right. We're here today to uh, get your take a little bit on, man, how did we get here? Um, and and I, how we get here is I said in a previous conversation that I think this is me, five different distinct type of Christian voters that almost all hate each other or think the other are, are genuinely capital wrong or almost evil. And you've got like the no voter, hey, to reject this kingdom is to embrace the other kingdom of God. John Sanders talked about that real personally and, and, and authentically with the one issue voter. Um, we have the social justice, economic justice voter. Um, a fourth one is, hey, we need to take biblical values um, into Western culture and into America, but I'm never voting for Trump. And then we've got to take biblical values to the world and to America. And I either love Trump or I'll tolerate Trump. And so you've got that like, hey, it's platform, not personality type thing. And so five really different things. And, and Brian, I'm my, again, a presumption that as the church, we haven't been this politically split since like Nixon. 
Can you kind of chop up how we got here? Sure. No, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, and it, really in the aftermath of, of, of World War II, that was perhaps the most significant and most traumatic event in, in world history um, uh, over the course of, of the 20th century, at, at least. Um, but in the aftermath of World War II, you know, uh, America was ascendant. We had, uh, with our allies, uh, defeated fascism, uh, both in, in, in Europe and in the Pacific. And the real threat at that point, uh, as, as most people saw it, was communism. Um, and that, you know, uh, opposition to and fear of communism as exemplified mainly by uh, the Soviet state um, and its expansionism into parts of Eastern Europe and into um, parts of Asia. Um, <clears throat> and to a lesser extent, Chinese communism. Those were uh, extremely formative in uh, American political and religious culture during the late 40s and, and the 1950s. And so what you see is this, this period in the 50s of post-war economic uh, health, uh, but you see the Christian faith increasingly tied to capitalism and to religious conservatism. Uh, which had not always been the case, by the way. Um, yeah, because uh, Brian, just uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like in the 40s in the United States, that was one of the most uh, turbulent periods of like the labor movement and the most active periods. During that time, it, was there much of a connection to the religious faith movement in the, or religious faith networks in the United States? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, during the 30s and 40s with, with the labor movements, there were a lot of mainline Protestants. There were lots of um, Roman Catholics uh, who were very involved in the labor movement, who were very involved in uh, supporting FDR's New Deal. Wow. Um, I mean, the FDR's New Deal on Fox is decried as like the beginning of the end or the beginning of like some social state that, you know, is ending America. It, right. I don't think that's too much of an overstatement either. Yeah, no, I mean that's definitely how it uh, how it gets portrayed um, today in in many conservative circles. But there was a lot of uh, of deep religious support for that that came out of um, Catholic social teaching that came out of um, the social gospel movement uh, in the at the beginning of the twentieth century, where you know mainline Protestants uh, really believed that they had uh, a mandate to go into the world and to, you know, take the ideas of, of uh, human dignity and human flourishing and the idea that we get to, um, you know, participate in making society better, uh, not just saving individual souls. And so there was a lot of Christian support for things like uh, not just prohibition, but support for, uh, for higher education, for environmentalism, um, there was a lot of support for women actually being able to vote and to hold the office. Um, and so uh, that tradition of, of, I would say, political liberalism, I guess, um, or at least support for a workers movement, you know, the, the, the poor, the oppressed, whatever, whatever, um, whatever that is, that was very much in vogue uh, prior to the 1950s. But then in the 1950s, anything that smacked of, uh, you know, the workers movement uh, or whatever the case is, that was, that was very much seen as, as being maybe latent communism or, or um, 
you know, uh, Karl Marx, you know, his tentacles into uh, the cultural fabric of the U.S. So it's actually in, in I think it was 54, um, that the words under God are added into the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, interestingly, the pledge was written by a, a socialist and an atheist. Uh, but in, in, in the 50s, you know, as America, as the United States is kind of setting itself in contrast to um, worldwide communism um, in our in our civic life and in our religious life, you know, the ideas of conservatism, capitalism and Christianity uh, were very, very much tied together. And that's where you see, um, you know, uh, patriotism in a in a almost a nationalistic patriotism start to get played up within the church. So Brian, I want to just make sure I'm, I'm, I'm putting this all together. Cause you started us post-World War II mm-hmm. where you said like, that's, you said a melding of Christianity and capitalism. Then you took yeah. a step back to say, well, Oh yeah. Like there was a strong movement of social gospel um, for in all different fabrics and colors. Right. Um, but particularly post-World War II as mm-hmm. our, hegemic enemy of communism starts to present itself, we start to um, root out any sort of um, strain that, that reeked of communism in a sense. Mm-hmm. And, and a, a, that went backwards in time almost to try to separate any kind of social progressive movements from there, um, at, from it's from the religion. Right. Well, and, and you have to remember there was a lot of real concern um within the United States and within the Christian community, especially at the uh, very violent ways in which the, the Soviet regime uh, in Russia and, and the Chinese communists were, um, were attacking any expression of religion because they saw that uh, as, as a threat um, to their, um, their socialist enterprise, I guess. Uh, Tortured for Christ, quick movie plug, a new true documentary out about Roman, uh, Romanian uh, Christians. Boy, uh, that's for real. It was filmed in a prison that the dude was tortured. Um, Anyway, sorry. Well, in many of those countries, just to provide a little bit of context, that Christianity was also like a tool of the colonial oppressor that was used as a cudgel to you know, like for centuries to, you know, destroy their own culture. So, well, I mean, it can be understood to an extent. (laughs) Right. No, it it absolutely can. In Tsarist Russia, the Russian Orthodox Church uh, and and the state uh, were basically one and the same. And and they were used to enhance the power of the state. They were used to, um, you know, really uh, keep the masses down, if you will. Uh, in, in, In China, um, you know, China really since the 1840s had dealt with a series of wars with European powers, starting off with the first opium war, um, where these, you know, Christian countries were fighting wars to get their missionaries in and to be able to sell opium, uh, to the Chinese in exchange for Chinese, you know, silk and other goods that, you know, China, the, the, um, teacups and stuff, but goods that, you know, <laughs> so, folks okay. in Europe wanted, right? So it was, we're going to, we're going to so open up your country. Exactly. It was really just that Europeans had bland food. So they were like, let's destroy centuries old civilization so we can get some spice. <laughs> I need pepper. 
Uh, I don't have but... any comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Brian. So, um, a boy, yeah, we could pick you for any random decade in the 18, 1700s here, but let's, so you've been moving us on this path. Yeah. Uh, you see the church start to get fused. 54 under God is, is added to remind Americans that we believe in God and those godless commons don't. Right. And, uh, and, okay. and the John Birch Society uh, was very prominent within more conservative evangelical and fundamentalist Christianity at that time as well. And you have, you know, you have people like Amy Simple McPherson, who was a, uh, a Pentecostal uh, leader who uh, really played up Christian nationalism during her time in ministry, which ended in the 40s. And, and you have, um, you know, you have people in the 50s like like Billy Graham. Uh, that are ascendant people like uh, on the Pentecostal side, Catherine Kuhlman, and they're going around the country and around the world. And they are gaining a lot of influence with uh, politicians and people in power, not just in the States, uh, but the world over. And the other thing that's happening that's, that, that's really important to mention is uh, increasing tensions surrounding the issue of race. And uh, I mean, you have Brown versus Board of Education. I also think in, in 54. I do. Um, and what you start to see is the South, which has been overwhelmingly Protestant and overwhelmingly uh, Democrat during um, the, the hundred years of segregation uh, after the Civil War. Um, you start to see some, some real difficulty develop in the Democrats holding on to uh, what had been their political base, the old solid South, because Republican politicians started to recognize that if they were going to form a winning national coalition, they needed to get um, uh, Southern folks, uh, religious folks on their team. And also Um, what were the, what was the Republican party high level known for before they were white Southern religious. Right. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't white. It wasn't Southern. It wasn't religious uh, hardly at all. I mean, it was the, the leadership of the party tended to be kind of milk toast mainline Protestant types that were much more interested in um, like Rockefellers, like making money, like the Rockefellers, right? Yeah. Uh, they were interested in making money. They wanted to make money. They wanted their, their uh, companies to make money. They wanted the U S to make money. Party of like um, international capital. Well, grand old party. In, in, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Um, and a lot of it, you know, uh, you have a lot of very genteel New England folks running the show back in the day. Um, but, but, right. Right. Um, but in 1960, you have the Democrats nominate John F. Kennedy. Well, John F. Kennedy was a Roman Catholic. And ever since Roman Catholics started immigrating to the States in large numbers, even going back to the 1800s, there have been religious and political movements uh, that were very anti-Roman Catholic. There was this idea that, you know, any Catholic politician was going to take his orders from the Pope in Rome uh, and would be a threat to, um, you know, American sovereignty. And so you see a lot of these Southern uh, Democrats who have been Democrats since the Civil War in 1960 uh, get really concerned Ooh. by JFK. Anti-Catholic bias. It was an enormous amount of anti-Catholic bias, adding to that the fact that JFK uh, was embracing, somewhat cautiously, but embracing um, the civil rights movement. 
And so Richard Nixon, who loses to JFK in 1960, uh, spends the next eight years uh, plotting his way into power. Like any good president around old Dick Nixon anymore. Right, (laughs) right. Um, And and what they what they realized is there was a lot of real uh, anger at desegregation uh, within the South. It's interesting when, when schools in the South were desegregated, it was round about that same time that there was this massive movement for starting Christian schools because, you know, we're, we want to raise our kids in the faith. We want to teach them uh, from a Christian perspective. We want to kind of combat the secularism that's seeping its way into the curriculum, even though the curriculum in many cases is controlled at the state level. What hasn't been explored uh, or widely known is the fact that it just so happened that all these Christian schools had students that were almost uniformly white. And so desegregation starts and all of a sudden Christian parents get interested in Christian schools, which is interesting because all of the black kids that were now allowed to go to previously white schools, they were all Christians, right? Yeah. Yeah. They were all come from the same area, <laughs> but they, right. And they, they, you know, but they couldn't afford to go to these mostly all white private schools, which is most of the private schools in the South. I can't say the same thing for the North, but that's when most of them were founded. Um, Brian's from the South. So he can say that. Keep going, Brian. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Um, But the 1950s and the 1960s was this huge uh, difficulty with uh, race. And um, you had a lot of conservative Southern white Christians um, that really felt threatened um, because now all of a sudden African Americans uh, had the vote and they desegregate or desegregation was happening, segregation was over. Um, and so there's a lot of resentment. So what, what Nixon did was he ran on a law and order platform, right? Uh, in 68. Um, and, and it was wildly popular. Uh, so uh, at that time, was law and order in need? I mean, I can, so I imagine on TV and on the however many channels that were even available to people, right. you see these things like racial tension, you see police. Mm-hmm. Well, there's Vietnam. I mean, there was also yeah, Vietnam. Anti-war protests constantly. Oh, yeah. Law and order sounds attractive. Black like Panthers. They down and get back right. to, get back to normalcy almost. That's, that's what I hear law and order sort of as a sister of. Right. Well, no, like absolutely. Absolutely. The, the left analysis of that time period is kind of just, okay, well, Nixon, you know, I mean, it's called the Southern strategy, the, yep. the Republican move to try and capture the Southern states through, you know, sort of racial antagonism and, uh, you know, an appeal to like that law and order tradition, that sort of thing. But where I feel like that's kind of where the left analysis usually stops because there's kind of an unwillingness to engage with, the reality of the situation, I guess, um, those that, those were, that those were real fears that like material. And, and that was also at the time, I mean, in the fifties was when the labor party expelled uh, the communists um, said, you can't be part of the labor movement anymore. I mean, there was a real beginning of a detached no communist progressive politics from other people's material benefits or from universal material benefits. Okay, so, so sorry, I just want to recap on a point you said before we go back to Brian. That was interesting. You said socialists um, and or modern lefters today felt like going deep in there because you potentially, in our history, had a bit of a non-material issue, which is whites, whites didn't like blacks. 
And that one is maybe one we couldn't quite solve as cleanly. I'm oversimplifying, but well, yeah, it's just it's just a yeah, it was just a thorny uh, time. And obviously, race has been like the biggest obstacle to um, you know sort of solidarity between working class or between elements of the working class in the United States. I would say for pretty much all of its existence, and it's worse in the United States than in other places. But yeah, it's it's sort of uh, I think you know we're we're faced with the same struggles today in largely like those those blocks are pretty much the same and so it has to be we have to find some sort of way to you know reach reach out to some of those people at least or, or find some sort of um, solidarity with them okay okay so brian so um we hear the southern the republicans engaging in southern strategy we hear which i haven't really defined yet so maybe you could help us there and then you have nixon though law and order and uh, he's making a play for the presidency Right. So, so again, like the late sixties, especially it's just this massive time of upheaval with, um, with, with the new racial realities, with the new sexual realities. I mean, there is, uh, this, this rise in, uh, feminism that a lot of, you know, uh, conservative people find concerning, but it's a, you know, it's a, it's, it's the idea that, you know, um, Hey, women can and should do everything that men can do, and, and they should be, um, you know, treated as equals. There, uh, there, there's also, as has been mentioned, Vietnam, and so, um, you know, even uh, between Vietnam and, and uh, the rise in drugs and uh, drug usage and and changing sexual mores in general, not just with feminism, but I, I wouldn't say that it's it's. Uh, more than it had ever been the case before, but more open sexual promiscuity and, and these things being encouraged by the wider culture. And That's what you have order. is these, <clears throat> right, well, what you have is these Southern, you know, uh, Christians, Southern evangelicals and, you know, religious people uh, throughout the whole country. They're very uncomfortable because it feels like the country is changing too rapidly and they're losing what they've known to be their country. And so, you know, law and order, Sounds similar um, to today. Sorry to interrupt. Indeed, these are. I would. I would argue these are very similar times. Um, but the idea of law and order, where you know, hey, we're going to go after some of these, you know, these hippies and these people that are starting riots in cities, and um, we're going to. Uh, we're not going to talk about segregation anymore, but we are going to talk about states' rights, and we are going to talk about the importance of traditional values. That was very, very appealing, as was the the way in which some of these policies played out. So marijuana, for instance, was, tended to be used by African-Americans and by, you know, hippies and anti-war types and (laughs) youths and stuff. Um, So, so marijuana, which had been previously kind of used medicinally in the States was uh, added to uh, the list of, of uh, uh, controlled substances that were illegal. And what you start to see is the uh, African-American communities that have uh, generally uh, moved from the country, you know, it, over the course of a couple generations, moved from you know the rural South into the North, um, into cities in the North, into to cities in general because they didn't like getting lynched by good Christian people. Um, God have mercy! Yeah. Land taken. Um, uh, all of a sudden, they're in these cities, 
uh, and the the housing that they have is uh, inadequate and it's all segregated because redlining is still a thing at this point. Um, and so, uh, so there's just poverty, there's squalor and, you know, rural white folks in the South look at that and go, Hey, this is a problem. We got to fix this. And so Nixon, Nixon was able to do a very good job kind of exemplifying conservative values that appealed to not just folks in the South, not just Christians, but a lot of folks all across the country. Um, he was, he was solving some problems, but, um, kind of, I know we're limited on time. So like moving forward into the seventies, what you have is there's still not necessarily a, a uh, coalescence of, of uh, religious folks. Yet. So the church I mean, hasn't come out with its leaders or its base and said, yes, we are behind you. Like Right. I mean, 68 and 72 were very successful for Nixon, but that was true all across the country. Um, but what you start to have happen is, you know, uh, a big watershed moment. And I think this will end up We'll talk about this more, but 1973, Roe versus Wade, uh, where abortion uh, was legalized by the Supreme Court in a, in a seven to two uh, decision. And there had been stuff happening culturally and legally. Um, I mean, Griswold versus Connecticut, I think in 53, where birth control was uh, decriminalized. Uh, previously, you could go to jail for sending you know, prophylactics and other forms of birth control across state lines. Thank um, goodness. Best case I've never heard of. And, <laughs> and Brian, Brian, from my understanding, like at the time of Roe, abortion wasn't really that much of a hotly debated issue. Do you know right. what time around did it become a priority for the Christian uh, movement yeah. or the Christian right? Absolutely. So, so this is actually fascinating, right? The, the pro-life movement prior to Roe v. Wade, because there were states like California, I mean, Governor Ronald Reagan in California, I think in 66, had legalized uh, abortion there. New Oof, York uh, had abortion. That's a hole in the history. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> New York uh, had legalized abortion starting in, I think it was 1970. And so what's interesting is prior to Roe v. Wade being a thing, there was actually a pro-life movement in this country that was religious. The, the difference is it was um, kind of uh, came out of progressive Christianity. So these were uh, mainline Protestants and Roman Catholics who were anti-war, who were anti-nuclear energy, who were um, environmental. Had, they were environmentalists. They had supported the civil rights movement and they saw this as a justice issue, you know, like a, like a humanism here. issue. Well, right. But it was, Hey, you know, we are opposed to violence being done to people that, you know, are, are, are the least and, and the overlooked and uh, are easy to take advantage of. And so they saw that as an extension of, all the other justice movements that they had been a part of. Wow. Right. Um, as, as was usually the case, the most progressive uh, element of the uh, coalition gets sidelined when it gets down to brass tacks. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, and it's, it, it's, it's interesting. There are small, there are small numbers of, of uh, uh, folks on the religious left that are still pro-life today. Um, but the Southern Baptist convention, which was going through its own, uh, left-right controversy actually came out in support of Roe v. Wade and celebrated it. What? Decision. Oh, yeah, the Southern Baptist Convention. Yes. I don't even so, know. If that's not my reality, you know, in where I live. Right. Well, I mean, that, that, again, there ago. was 
there was also uh, you know a raging battle between uh, you know moderates and and, right. and more conservative evangelicals for control of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, that would continue into the eighties. But um, what you really start to have happen is after uh, after nineteen seventy six nineteen seventy six when a Southern white evangelical Jimmy Carter um, was elected. To yeah, the right. Presidency. Okay, so quick pause because yeah, sorry. So. Um, you, you'd think that that's somebody that anyone religious in the country, if voting on sort of similar religious, faithful, spiritual beliefs would be lockstep behind. Right. And many Christians were many, okay. many, uh, Protestants were, I mean, uh, a lot of, I mean, Jimmy Carter did very well in the South, uh, in, in 76 and defeated Ford, who was incumbent. You know, the incumbent, but very much tainted um, yeah. by pardoning Nixon after after Nixon resigned in the aftermath of the Watergate scandal. Um, but what you what you see is Jerry Falwell uh, forming the moral majority. You start to see uh, folks like Pat Robertson, who was a Pentecostal uh, televangelist, um, get involved in conservative politics. And more explicitly saying we much are more conservatives, okay, we are so, part of this party. Well, yeah, I know this is a dumb question, but why? Um, because, again, they they started to see what in their perspective, the society was changing in ways that were fundamentally bad. Um, there was uh, a lot more racial mixing. There was a lot more secularism. You Kids have, having sex on the streets like. I'm sure that was happening somewhere, unfortunately. But, yeah, I don't know. Bras being burned, you know, <laughs> yeah. visceral right. imagery of the time. Okay, so but that's interesting because um, I mean we saw a huge support, uh, largely huge support. I don't want to paint everybody, but with the church and law and order and Trump, and I'm sort of hearing the same thing happen back then. No, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 what built the religious right is this idea that you know, we are losing things that are inherently American. America was founded as a Christian nation. America was founded as a nation of morals. And, you know, America was, yes, we tolerate minorities, but now they're getting too big and they're getting too vocal and they're getting too powerful and we are uncomfortable. Um, and so the religious right identifies the abortion issue and says, Hey, this is a great issue that we can mobilize around. Um, and so they do. Um, it was it was you know abortion, anti homosexuality, religious liberty, um, which religious liberty in a conservative Christian context does not mean everybody gets to practice their religion. Yeah, Brian, I'll step in fit. there and say you know I think we had this conversation over a decade ago. I can't think of something more tyrannical than. Um, a government getting into someone's house and saying you can't do something between two consenting consenting adults. Uh, it it mm-hmm. makes me angry. I get it's so hypocritical. So anyway, it, it's w- worth providing. I feel like a little bit of economic context too, just because during this time, I mean, it was this was the big beginning. I would say of the terminal decline of America it, with the stagflation crisis um, in the early seventies and the Volcker shock. And we can get into that in a more detail at a later episode because it's sure. super interesting. But just suffice it to say that things were pretty bad and both parties were beginning to abandon any sort of um, 
material working class politics. Mm -hmm. And this was, in my opinion, the very the beginning of the culture war in terms of it being waged in both parties in full. That's really interesting because he uses a buzzword and I want to we want to be respectful to your time culture war, because I mean, if I listen to Christians with microphones, most of them now, it's not only are we in a culture war, but you're damn right. We are and we need to win it. Right. And so is, is that true? Is that when culture war happened? And well, that's really that's really when it, it, it starts is with the formation of the moral majority and and, um, you know, the, the, the rise of the religious right is this idea that. You know, there is a war for the hearts and minds of the people in this country, and we're currently losing it. So we need to mobilize politically because our kids are being taught evolution and sex ed in schools, and they're being taught things that, you know, we don't like and we don't agree with. And we're naming streets after Martin Luther King. And I so- never got why we put condom on bananas. A banana does not need a condom. <laughs> Just wasteful teaching. <laughs> Yours isn't shaped like that. <laughs> I just don't think a banana needs a condom. I don't know. That's, that's, oh, I was okay. very literal. <laughs> what are we doing here? <laughs> oh, okay. That makes, that makes sense. Anyway, it was sorry, useful, Brian. Keep going. <laughs> Dear God. Um, so, so anyway, so there's this there's this need to uh, engage politically because the influence that has been previously enjoyed by. Uh, especially Protestant Christianity and a lot of the shared values there is, is waning uh, in, in the country. And so, you know, Reagan wins in 80, defeating Jimmy Carter. And, um, to and again, it, make America great. Well, exactly. And uh, had reinvented himself, um, become a, a conservative Republican uh, who represented the interests of the religious right and conservative Christians. Okay, so yeah, and not I, just feasibly to make America great again. I mean, that was that was his explicit campaign. That was motto. his campaign. So, so uh, why did Christians abandon Carter so much? Was it because like the Iran hostage crisis and we just got embarrassed and Christians were like, we'll support a religious guy if you don't just get spanked internationally? Like, how did that happen? Like, what, what was how did that shift happen? Or he just we knew that Reagan would bring down communism. What? Well, I mean, the, the, the economy was difficult, um, and Carter didn't necessarily do a great job handling the economy. I mean, those were the long lines in front of gas stations trying to, you know, pay way too much money to fill your tank of, full of gas. There was, uh, there was a lot of economic pain. There was. America had been uh, kind of embarrassed by uh, the, the Iranian revolution uh, on an international stage. Um, there wasn't a coherent foreign policy that, that appealed to a lot of folks. Uh, and again, you, you, the, the Republicans were very smart about how they uh, put the focus on m- social issues, moral issues, and a culture war because you know you don't have to you you don't have to convince people that your economic plan is going to work. You tell them tax cuts are good, you're going to get some. But the real issue is we want to protect innocent human life, and those people like abortion. And at that time of like real, real economic pain, Mm -hmm. you have Carter saying, coming out and saying, basically, things actually aren't going to get back to being fully good. Right. We used to the idea of having less dumb, dumb, dumb truth teller. Yeah. And then Reagan came in and was like, shut up, dummy. You don't have to say that. (laughs) You can tell them the good times are going to last forever. 
Yeah. Well, and that's and that's the that's the idea behind, you know, Reagan's administration was, hey, we're going to be strong on the international stage. We're going to take the fight to the communists, but we're also going to, you know, engage in in the type of uh, socially conservative policies that will, you know, keep the Christians happy. Uh, and so what you see is the the, the Christians really uh, start to become a special interest group, just like any other, uh, at least in the way that they are. Uh, uh, treated and catered to by the Reagan administration. <clears throat> and this is, you know, this is interesting, kind of a, a tangent here, but during the Reagan administration in particular, there was a lot of support, not just from the government, but from um, Christian ministries for uh, right-wing regimes, anti-democratic in many cases, in a lot of different parts of the world, especially Latin America, um, where uh, Christians actually funded uh, a lot, uh, several coups and takeovers, and supported folks like there was a um, there was a Pentecostal preacher that, that became president for about two years in El Salvador, um, and he ran a very right wing uh, government, kind of rooting out the communists. He ended up killing tens of thousands of his own people because he had the mandate of heaven to do so. so um, I just thought that was CIA uh, us knocking down um, democ- <laughs> democratically elected socialists or whatever. To right. I mean, that's community. again tangential, but we've been doing. I guess what I'm saying is, so. you're saying though <laughs> that like that had a lot of sympathy. Uh, you know, one anti-communist, two let's put oh, Pentecostals sure. in 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 presidencies in you know, these countries to the south of us. Right. Absolutely. And, and we've been we've been, you know, involved in Latin America at the past of various fruit companies for for quite some time. Um, but you start to see this resurgent um, Americanism that's very tied to conservative Christian religious values. Um and, you know, uh, kind of skipping ahead, you get into the Clinton period where we have this godless Democrat uh, who's actually a Methodist in office. And, and again, you've got Christians feeling uh, on the outs politically. And, uh, you know, I, I still remember when Clinton was impeached uh, in the aftermath of the Monica Lewinsky scandal um, and Christians making a very strong case that you can't have amoral, immoral people with poor character holding high public office because it's going to tarnish the office. It's going to tarnish the country. It's going to the, the uh, you know, basically making the argument that somebody like a president needs to be of high moral character because of uh, the fact that it sets the tone for the country and that uh, it, it's not just Brian. a reflection of bad policies, but bad character is going to influence people. It's going to be mm-hmm. influential within the society and the culture. One question from a Christian to another here, because uh, we hear a lot, you know, like within our own conversational circles, like, you know, if we don't get rid of this amoral policy, whatever else, it'll mm-hmm. get it'll bring judgment, God's judgment on sure. America. Absolutely. Was, was that present then or did that start later? No, I mean, that's been that's been throughout. That's been a lot of the rationale and the rhetoric behind Christian involvement in politics is, hey, we were founded okay. as a Christian nation, which is a somewhat of an ahistorical myth. Uh, well, well we got to bring you on for a different it's a lot more complicated than that. <laughs> that's, uh, um, Dr. Jefferson here in Dallas would disagree with you. So we got to. <laughs> We need to address that separately. 
Indeed. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a lot more complicated than that. But the idea that, you know, and this this is tied to Christian support for Israel as well, but like when you do things as a nation that you can point to in the Bible and say, well, God likes this, as in God likes supporting Israel, then if your government chooses to support Israel against, say, the Palestinians, um, then God will bless your country. Uh, and you will be less uncomfortable, you know, um, mm. with some of the social changes that are also happening. worth noting that God supported Israel by teaching them lessons repeatedly and severely. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. That Brian, is, often, that is just, often forgotten. That and not saying anything with that, I'm just saying nothing with just, that. You're putting that on the table in case you want to try that side dish. I'm, I'm not going to touch that one. Not even close to that. Brian, so we've yeah. got Godless Clinton in office. Get some. Yep. And the uh, moral right goes, see, I told you. See, we told you so. And so it was almost a validation of, hey, we've been telling you this slide into godless, amoral, sexually promiscuous, you know, liberalism. I'm in the Oval now. Here's exhibit A. Um, and so in the aftermath of Clinton, George W. Bush comes into office and you have the 9-11 attacks, which at that point... You know, we invade Afghanistan. A couple of years later, we invade Iraq. And there is there is both the very real perception that uh, America, as somewhat of a chosen nation, is under attack and is in conflict with not just, you know, uh, liberalism and sexualism, secular, secularism, but also uh, in conflict with um, now an ascendant uh, is Islam. Uh, and, and Islamic um, expansionism uh, throughout the world. Uh, and it was, it was interesting. Uh, I will always remember uh, uh, kind of backtracking a little bit. It's interesting to note the moment when George W. Bush won the election, because George W. Bush didn't win the election on, on election night in November. George W. Bush won the election at a forum in Iowa when he was asked, you know, who's the greatest philosopher or the greatest, you know, thinker um, uh, to you basically was the question. And his answer was Jesus Christ, because he changed my life. And the election was over at that point. Hmm. The man didn't have to say anything else because all of a sudden in the aftermath of Clinton, you have George W. Bush, the governor of Texas, say something like that. And like nobody else nobody else's like economic argument. I mean, you had all kinds of people running in the Republican primaries at that point, but nobody else's, you know, arguments or qualifications mattered. Christians heard that and said, yep, that's our guy. Yeah. As someone who was born in 1995, I feel like I remember my early political memories and education of everything seemed to be on from Democrats fear of some imminent theocracy and Republicans fear of some imminent, secular uh crusade again you know extermination program of christian or something like sure well and and both of those both of those fears are 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 somewhat overblown and definitely have been manipulated (laughs) um but you have yeah sorry sorry and before we get you know from a bush to obama here and we had these massive wars so like i i wonder if what, what happened to the church during, man, the time where we were both paying attention even, you know, from 2000 on, we're fighting foreign wars. Mm-hmm. We're certainly getting some sort of culture war, like right. France doesn't support us. So 
No, freedom, freedom fries. fries. <laughs> but, uh, but like, you know, but like, I, I feel like a lot of the, the race issues, maybe because I wasn't paying attention, sort of took a back seat and said, like, oh, you're going to wait because we're focused outside our own borders. Is, is that is that true? Like what happened with the church among in the Bush era? Right. Well, I want to be careful how I say this. White people in the United States tend not to be concerned about race issues unless black people are in the streets protesting. And that wasn't happening in the early 2000s. So living in our mostly separate worlds, separate neighborhoods, definitely separate churches, we weren't really confronted with those problems. Okay, Um, that I think is true to my observation at least. Right. Okay. Um, But there was- We were in a post-racial society back then. Yeah, (laughs) indeed. Things were good. but uh, but there was a very I mean a very strong connection between um, uh, conservative Christianity and the idea that we had somebody in the White House that was going to um, advocate for our interests. During this time, you really start to see a lot of mobilization around the issue of same-sex marriage uh, within the Christian community, at least, and that's when you start to see all kinds of state and federal attempts at marriage amendments, identifying in constitutions um, that marriage can only be between one man and one woman. And the Republicans, you know, George Bush and Karl Rove did this on purpose. They would ensure that these marriage amendments uh, would be on the ballot during key elections in key states Mm. because it would drive up Christian turnout. And you have this message of it is your Christian duty to vote. Do you feel that, and a tough question this late in our conversation, that at least line Christian duty to vote took preeminence around the mobilization of gay rights. Well, so, I mean, that had, that had been uh, the argument of the moral majority and the religious okay. right okay. Uh, from when they had started in the late seventies is, you know, uh, we are the majority, but we're not voting. And because we're not voting, we're losing a lot of political battles and we're losing our influence within the government. And so you have the duty to vote for people that are going to uh, line up with the values of the Bible as we tell them to you. Mm. And so what you really see in the, in the early to mid two thousands continuing up until about 2010 is conservative Christian people using the political power that they have uh, gained for themselves and benefiting from the focus that they've put on getting people in their community to vote, to really make it clear from a government perspective of, hey, you know, marriage is only between one man and one woman. And if you attempt to engage in any kind of homosexual behavior, uh, you are not going to receive the support of the state or the acknowledgement of the state in any meaningful way. So there was an enormous amount of whiplash uh, between uh, the start of the 21st century and the middle part of of, uh, the 2010s, because you have in in a vast majority of the states, state marriage amendments, and then, you know, into the second term of, of President Obama's administration. You have the the support of the president and the vice president of the United States for uh, marriage equality, and you have the Supreme Court um, that affirms marriage equality and and, and makes uh, that the law of the land. And and he's pushing uh, other issues in the sense not not the same you know rights and liberties right. for LGBTQ plus, but I still remember at the time being just like culturally we're going wow that's like this is this is 
uh, progressive when well, there was two transgender soldiers that yeah. had had lunch at the White House that were in yeah. a relationship. And I was like, whoa, like, yeah. that was that, you know, it's, it was kind of a, a cultural epiphany moment for me. Well, and, and I think it speaks to the fact that when a religious movement chooses to put their cards in engaging uh, in politics so that they can use the political process of whatever country they're in to impose their uh, version of morality on the general public, uh, there tends to be a significant backlash. Yeah, I was going to say, it's interesting that they've sort of put all their chips in on the culture war. Mm -hmm. And since that time, now that I really think about it, they've only really seen losses. Well, and that's the interesting thing. Part of that is due to, you know, some characteristics that are built into American culture. Um, namely, we don't like the government telling us what to do, whether we're, you know, on the political right or the Yeah, political whether left. it means our guns or how what I can do in my own home or do with right. my body or whatever. Right. But but it's also, you know, it's um, and without waxing too philosophical, it's interesting that a religion that that suggests the need for a, a, a conviction of, of sin and a conviction of a need for a savior uh, in order to take I mean, away the to... effects of the sin, right? Yes. That your need for supernatural grace um, on both an individual and community level uh, would choose to use political power uh, to punish people that they could instead be uh, focused on loving loving um i, I would even suggest con- converting because that's certainly you know that's <laughs> no, something that christians right, i mean that's something like, you know christians, right and, and christians the world over have included the idea of of proselytizing and converting people um i don't trust christian is not trying to ethos. convert me because it's like well, don't you think I'm about to be hit by a bus or something? Would you pull me out of the way? Sure, uh, sure. <laughs> but again, it seemed it seemed at least in that point that there was uh, a certain amount of revulsion uh, to homosexuality within the church. There are plenty of uh, sins uh, societally and culturally, uh, but there was not the same revulsion to the sin of racism as there was mm. to the sin of homosexuality. Yeah. Um, Sorry, we just had a guest come on too, is, hasn't been released yet, talking mm. about how she thought the uh, sexual sins were placed at a preeminent value relative to just about every, anything else. Some sexual like, sins. What's that? Some sexual sins. Some sexual sins. Very good. Because it, again, it's, it's, it's an in-group, out-group mentality. When you have decided to see yourselves as, uh, as aggrieved, as threatened, um, you know, when say a Republican politician or the pastor of your church, um, ends up, it's, it's revealed that, you know, there's been some amount of sexual impropriety or, uh, sin from the Christian perspective. Uh, there's much more of a tendency to minimize Mm. how that gets, publicized as much as possible to protect your image, the image of your church, your group, your, your people, as it Mm. were. Roy Moore, maybe example. Indeed. Like we're going to be, you know, Roy Moore has been very clear about, uh, about what the Bible says about homosexuality, but it's okay for a 30 year old man to accost 14 year old girls in the mall and try to get them into his car. 
Hey, Jesus didn't say anything about that. Well, no, 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 but no, uh, he, he did. But I mean, I think Brian's point is is well taken in that, yeah. you know, we would rather vote for somebody we know as a Christian who might have had, you know, bouts of sin and in the past and oh, Republican than and oh, by the way, could be a child, you know, molester and predator than a Democrat. Like right. that's that's why we have Brian on. So I was like, that's half the reason we're doing the show, yeah. man. Besides like loving each other is that that's mind boggling. Well, and, I, and again, I think we're getting a little, we're getting away from the timeline a little bit, but when Sorry. you, no, it's, when you make, um, when you make gaining and maintaining political power, the highest good, um, you really, as a movement, start to engage in the type of moral relativism that Christians uh, at least say that they don't accept. Uh, but you get a lot of uh, very situationally based ethics uh, that tend to be convenient, not towards being faithful to a religious tradition that spans the entire globe and 2000 years of history, but instead is more faithful to the idea that your people and your policies being in positions of power is what's going to save you instead of, I don't know, the gospel. So where does where do you think that leaves us now? Because obviously, like these problems are ha, that have lasted really since like the end of the Civil War, I would say, or even further back, are, are still with us clearly. And and like now we're in a situation where it seems like the evangelical movement or the Christian faith is pretty much fully captured by the Republican Party. There's ob- not I mean, there. like, totalizing, there. of course, but that that's a good statement to test to hear, Brian. Like. A- and Brian, we're going to maybe have to bring you back on to yeah. dig into these types of Christian voters I laid out. But yeah. maybe Cyrus's question is best. Where do you see us now? Do you see Christianity, or Amer- uh, Christians who are American, enraptured by the Republicans and like under a death grip or like what? And is that is that bad? I, I mean, I just want to hear it all from you. Sure. Um, well, I think the last five or six years, uh, the Trump era, if you will, uh, have provided us with the opportunity uh, to really evaluate, and this is happening on an individual level, this is happening on community levels, within denominations, within larger American Protestantism and evangelicalism, there's, there's, a, there's a debate going on, a discussion going on about, you know, is, is the way that we've engaged with the wider culture, is the way that we've engaged in politics over the course of the last 70 or so years, is this sustainable, is this good, is this wholesome and helpful? Um, I think we have a unique opportunity uh, to reevaluate and to reassess um, in the light of, you know, the last couple of years of, of the Trump administration, because, you know, there are folks that uh, within evangelical Christianity that obviously very strongly support the former president. And there are those that took some very public stands uh, against him. Right. And what I would offer is, you know, uh, there are cultists out there, uh, part of the, the, the political and religious Trump cult. And there are also people that could be charged with, you know, quote unquote, Trump derangement syndrome, as, as the right likes to say. Um, but in the end, what we've seen is more, um, the former president is not the issue. Yeah. The former president and, and his administration and the way that that all went down uh, was more of a symptom of some longstanding issues that 
uh, Christians in America, which continue to, you know, white Protestant evangelicals continue to decline as a percentage of the overall population while they continue to maintain rather high levels of voting comparative to other segments of the population. But it's an opportunity to kind of step back, assess, and, and really wrestle with, are we not only uh, living out our faith in a way that is consistent and honest, um, not just as individuals, not just as denominations or, or churches, but, but in light of 2000 years of Christian history um, on the one hand, and are we actually living out our, our, our responsibilities and our duties as uh, citizens of, uh, of our nations uh, in a way that, in a way that makes an expression of our faith winsome, vice uh, what it has often been, I would argue, uh, which is um, to create a lot of animosity and resentment against Christians and Christianity and, and Christian involvement in the public sphere. Yeah, because it really turns them into, I mean, it unavoidably, they become a political actor. And once you're a political actor in the arena of politics, like it's that, that is a place that for people forget how, you know, in recent days, I guess it's, it's been more clear, like, oh yeah, politics is dangerous, but like people used to get killed for being political all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and those instincts are still there because what it is, is like you said, it's about power. So well, that's a really interesting kind of yeah. I mean, what you what you see, and, and this this is not unique to the moment in time that we live in in this country, uh, but what you see is a lot of times a religion will be modified to meet the political desires of the people within the movement. Vice the people within a, a religion or a movement. Uh, evaluating their politics in light of the faith tradition that they subscribe to. And I think that's what we have as Christians. That's what we have the opportunity to do now is to take a good long look at our history as a nation, as a faith, and take a good, you know, use that as the lens with which to view the time in which we live in uh, vice, you know, kind of cherry picking uh, whether it's Bible verses or historical events taken out of context uh, to suit uh, our agendas in our present time. Brian, God bless you. That was good. Appreciate being able to talk with you. I, I appreciate you. I wish we would have had more time to ask more questions about the history. And so um, we'd love to have you back on and love to, you know, dig into a lot more history and a lot more just, you know, analysis and, and encouragement. You know what? Um, we just wanted to leave you with um, the encouragement to, love your wife, love your daughter, um, all in ways in which, you know, yep. uh, you know what, uh, one of the things you encouraged us listening to the early, early episodes was we can talk about this so long as you know what, uh, we're really encouraging each other to literally love your neighbor cookies, Absolutely. whatever COVID's going on. They need help. So, um, thank you, sir. Yeah, thank Brian, you. thanks for, uh, bringing your spirit to the show, man. It was, it was excellent. And I think it couldn't have been a better match. So we'd love to have you back sometime. Yeah, I appreciate being able to talk with you guys. What you're doing is, is really important nowadays. Um, so thank you guys for doing it. Thanks, Brian. You have a good one, buddy. All right, you too. Cyrus, a lot from Brian Sears. We have only had two or three conversations to get us to agree on this. Not a lot of disagreement with history. I know we've 
skimmed and skipped a lot over 50, 70 years of history, but super informative on how we got to today. Yeah, obviously, you know, history isn't one story or one perspective. It's the combination of them all. But I do think he brought up a lot of extremely prescient and salient points. And, you know, really, as we, as we will get into it, I think in a little bit in this recap, those issues that existed at the beginning of the conflict and wedge between the social Christianity and material politics for the poor and oppressed and working class, those same issues are still with us today. You'd be hard pressed to say that they're not and that the causes of them are not the same. Yeah. And you know what, uh, just to distill our the conversation, one for the folks listening, but two for you and I to understand how to interview folks going forward and to inform our own opinions. Uh, I think we took away five points of, of, or lessons rather than points from that history of how we got to today and how this might inform where we go f- from here. And the first is the United States led the anti-communist world. So an anti-commie pro-God uh, lesson where the United States became institutionally more religious under God and our Pledge of Allegiance as a way to separate and distinguish ourselves from the godless commies. It was, in a lot of ways, a wedge to get people pried away from communist politics or socialist politics is, well, they're, you know, they're anti-Christian. They're anti what you believe in. And, and to, to, to some extent, that was true. But, you know, I don't think it was the whole truth. Yeah, that helps me understand a little bit more of where we're at now um, and why we maybe don't want to walk away from it. It's just because for anyone that's been alive, that's basically our history and heritage. To change that would be to go to back or forward to some place, irreligious place unknown. Well, right. And that's that's the interesting thing about that real time period and the one that kind of immediately followed it, you know, post-World War II that Brian gets into is the way in which you know, they, quote unquote, the, the powers that be in a way, the media, you know, the um, the ruling class really made a lot, went to a lot of effort to lump things in like the civil rights movement in with, you know, international an international communist conspiracy. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Because that's our second takeaway of the church's change um, in the civil rights with the electorate. Yeah, well, I mean, as Brian, you know, kind of pointed out, just the ability of, you know, during that time period, obviously, there was there was a lot of social unrest and social change, uh, you know, occurring. And it was also at a time, you know, pre, uh, you know, 19, early 1970s, and especially post, where there was, you know, real, the be- real beginnings of economic pre- precarity in the United States for, for people who hadn't maybe experienced it in a long time. So you have that in combination with everything else changing around them. And it's hard not to conflate those two things and say, well, all these other social things are changing, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, black people getting, you know, ostensibly the actual right to vote and the actual, you know, equal citizenship under the law. And then later, you know, feminism, LGBT movements, these types of things. But that caused a wedge and is something that the, uh, you know, Republican Party at that time was able to capitalize on and, and draw people away from. I think that ties in our next point of how the church and the faithful changed in the political landscape was with the social revolution. We call it the Vietnam War, hippies, marijuana criminalization, sexual revolution. You had a couple things happening. The uh, Democratic Party through JFK and Lyndon B. Johnson walked away from uh, uh, segregation. And as a result, 
you got a lot of blacks and some of the Catholics, if not majority Catholics, going to a Democratic Party. And you got a lot of the Christian white voters in the South walking towards the GOP. And I think that was further established with the like GOP's law and order and social conservatism that was like going on at that time. So you, yeah, I mean like Lyndon Johnson was really the last push from the democratic party in any real way for material politics, you know, the great society. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? So you said like at this time, the, the democratic party left material politics or left sort of redistributive politics for workers as a platform concern? Yeah. And I think, you know, it kind of starts in part with the beginning of the culture war in a, in a general sense, which I do think, you know, the, the makings of it had been going on throughout all the 1960s. But the first person to really capitalize on that was the Nixon, the Nixon administration. I mean, you have uh, I want to read a little quote here just because I think it's, it's pretty applicable to what we're talking about. And this is from Nixon's domestic policy chief, John Ehrlichman very high in his administration. And this was an interview he gave a couple decades after he left. But I think it it definitely speaks to uh, the beginning and illustration of, of, of where we're at now. So I'll just read this out. He says, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, And then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. And I think that was the, you know, ability, like you said, the law and order, um, as, as Brian sort of pointed out, it was like, oh, we're setting up a dichotomy where our party is the party of tradition, of order, of conservativeness. Your party is the party of radical politics. But at the exact same time, the Democratic Party was coming to some conclusions about the fact that they would not be able to carry the uh, working class in the same way, to, to, to support them in the same ways, because the, the economic system couldn't support that while still giving the same proportion of, of the profits to the elites. So you have that happening, but you have the Republican Party, you know, or the Democratic Party running away from material politics and the Republican Party running to culture, cultural politics. And the, so the Democratic Party sort of followed suit, I think. And you see that. That's probably one of the biggest lessons of identity politics birthed in the Democratic Party's step away from material labor politics alongside the Republican Party's jump into the culture war. Yeah, because, you know, the Vietnam War really, really defeated any chance for, for solid material politics, solidarity uh, in the end of the 60s. And it was totally defeated at the end of the 60s. So all those people who still had, you know, radical ideas about what they wanted to do, they moved into stuff for special interest groups. And it's not to say that any of those policies were bad necessarily, but they were not all encompassing. One of the two biggest lessons that we took away from Brian is what was what you said there, and I want to restate it because it's important. Identity politics happened in a marriage-like format. As the Democratic Party walked away from what we would call socialist policies today, things for labor, things for material politics. And social democratic, you know. Social democratic things. Basically, we're on a trajectory with Johnson to be similar to those Western European 
Yeah. Uh, so social Democratic democracy. Party takes a left turn out of that, though, to purify their ranks from communism and all these sort of things. And with the Republican Party's step towards social conservatism, law and order, culture war. That's, yeah. that's a big step in how we got where we are today. But with anything, all it takes two to tango. You know, That's the, I mean. the, Democrats, yeah. the Democrats didn't have to respond to that and say, like, we'll be your dance partner in this culture war. But they did because it's it's easier and it requires much less political will to do things like that and requires much less personal sacrifice. Uh, yeah. And I, I think the next two lessons are really uh, the go coincide. And it's the Carter, Reagan, Obama, Trump impact there and I, we're going to largely skip over the bush carl rove era not because it's not interesting but that our time here i think what happened with the church and politics and the electorate with obama and now trump and where we are today really similar to what happened with carter reagan i so within carter and obama you had huge economic turmoil from the 0809 crash to you know inflation crisis inflation crisis and everything else and you had some economic policies that were okay, uh, you know, things like uh, certainly the bailouts had some ire to them and Carter's delivery of some of his economic policies was that like, hey, we're wearing sweaters in the White House, right? Like it's not going to necessarily get a lot better. And you've got Carter getting embarrassed internationally through the Iranian crisis, yeah. crisis. And then you've got Obama who in fairness got Osama and bin Laden but also had Benghazi. And Americans are looking at ourselves going like, how are Iranians holding our men and women hostage and we can't get them back? Just like America was looking at, how oh, can we get an ambassador drug out into the street and killed? Well, and, and you I have, think, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, you know, both Carter and Obama, you know, when you are in a moment of profound crisis, like both of them were in at the very beginning of their presidencies, it's a huge opportunity. And both ran as change candidates you know jimmy carter didn't necessarily bill himself at that he was a georgian peanut farmer christian but he billed himself for sure as totally counter to the corrupt poisonous washington establishment that you know had rotted our values from the core and obama you know represented sort of that similar change and then both when they actually got into office and had the opportunity to totally restructure things they did not they did nothing they left things exactly the same. And what do we know with at both of the end of their presidencies? You have a huge neoconservative reaction. I mean, I think it's fair to say that Reagan was a populist, too, in a lot of ways. And, and and it's, it's somewhat of a similar populist, right? Increased spending, even though ostensibly being a conservative, um, turned towards socially conservative policies, whether they be abortion or law and order. Right. I mean, that rings pretty true with what Trump did. And oh, both Absolutely. weren't really politicians. Uh, you know, I know Reagan was the governor of California, but was an actor. So there's yeah. this like you know, anti-Washington, like, hey, what's going to, you know. And, Which and is amazing because the only people that might be sicker in this country than our politicians are celebrities. So. <laughs> yeah. So we elected celebrities. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, it's it was a really. Um, it was interesting to have Brian be able to weave all those threads sort of through all those moments. And a lot of those things, like you, you mentioned, the, the Carter to Reagan and Obama to Trump thing is not really a comparison I'd, I'd given much thought to. But I do think there's there's a lot of, of legitimate ties there. I haven't um, heard that anywhere. Yeah, uh, that sort of 
comparison, but what's it mean for us now and today? I guess now that I see it, it helps me sort of separate myself from what I hear Christians with microphones or Christians writing op-eds in different political directions and going, okay, this has happened before within like people that are alive's lifetime. I'm going to think, I'm going to figure this one out for myself. I'm going to listen a little bit less to people who have sort of expert opinions and inform myself and sort of chart my way forward. So I just, I feel a little bit more self-liberated to make my own decisions after getting a little bit of historical context. I would like more historical context, certainly to the early 1900, late 1800 Christian progressive movement. So we need to find someone there. And then two, I'd like a little bit of historical, a lot more historical context on what Christians were thinking and, 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 and writing around the time democracy starts rolling out in the world because we still have to answer some of John Sanders' challenges to like, should we even be voting an activist and these sort of things. And so I want to know the origins and the history of why we think temporal power was a good one to go after. Yeah, and that, that's a really good point about, you know, like the power of history to, to liberate yourself, you know, in, in certain situations when you can't liberate yourself politically, liberation of the mind. And I, that's a big reason why I want to continue to bring on more historical based guests. And I hope that, you know, this episode gets a decent reaction because I find this stuff fascinating and I think it opens us up to a lot of other really good conversations. So I don't want to uh, take up too much more time, but with, uh, with that analysis, but anything else you, uh, any final thoughts you have, Chase? A quick plug next episode, we've got Jason Yates, the CEO of My Faith Votes. And so he'll be uh, bringing in a perspective of why Christians should vote and should vote their biblical values. So it'll be very interesting uh, to, to hear what Jason's got to say. With that said, Chase, always good to see your uh, smiling, your smiling face. You know, love the people in your life and uh, go out into the world. And great thanks. Are eternal, and this has been a contest over a principle. In this contest, brother has been arrayed against brother, father against son. It is for these that we speak. We do not come as aggressors. Our war is not a war of conquest. We are fighting in defense of our homes, our families, and posterity. This has been Cross of Gold. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'd like to thank Sant Invictus for producing our intro and outro songs and uh, look forward to seeing you next time.